Hi everyone, welcome to the Sacred Musings podcast with me, Phil Saker. It's podcast number 24 today, it's the 24th of Feb, 22, and today on the podcast, we are thinking about reconfiguring politics. So those of you who have been around for a while know that one of the things that I'm fascinated with thinking about is uh, the role of the government and what the government should be like. You know, it's all very well to criticise, but when you criticise the government, you have to have an idea in your mind of what they should be doing instead. And that's what I think that we're kind of largely missing in in the Western world at the moment is really a conception of what the government should be doing. And rather than just throwing rocks at them and saying, you're not doing this, that and the other, we should actually be saying, look, this is what you should be doing. This is how how government should be having a, a positive vision, if you like, for government. So what I want to do is I want to start looking at um, about politics, about reconfiguring politics, uh, because I think there are some major problems with the way that we are just simply not, um, you know, we, we need to have a different vision now, you know, that politics has become broken. So we need to have a different vision for what we're trying to accomplish, for what politics, for what the government is trying to accomplish. So we'll get onto that in a, a few moments in the podcast. As always, I'd just like to begin with one or two links and thoughts about that. The first thing is, um, I put this up on Twitter the other day on the um, Metatron substack, that's at Joel Smalley, and um, it's called Insights from Beyond the Grave, and it's from a GP from Cornwall, and um, he's written about how he's become concerned about what's what's happened with, with COVID, and um, you know, it's a really good letter, sort of like an open letter, and it's really worth reading if you haven't read it already. Do have a look at that. That's um, a, a doctor called Dr. Cartland, Dave Cartland. Um, and he's also a Christian, it seems. So that's that's really good. The other interesting thing that I saw this week, I mean, there are lots of interesting things, too many to mention. But the other interesting thing I wanted to, to mention here was um, from the World Economic Forum. And this was... Um, on the Great Awakening uh, Twitter page. I'll put a link to all of these things down in the description below. And this was um, from the World Economic Forum 2018. It's someone talking about basically a genetic engineering and saying how we human beings need to um, you know, uh, we human beings, we can control nature now because of technology, you know, nan- nanotechnology and all of that kind of thing. We can control nature and we now are the drivers of evolution, that it's not blind anymore, that we are, you know, he said it's not a god above the clouds. He said we are the gods and the cloud is now the IBM cloud or the Microsoft cloud or whatever it is, basically saying, you know, we are the driving force now in the world behind evolution. We can control what happens and it's no longer, we're not limited by, you know, biology, but, you know, the limit is only the technology. And it said this is the most frightening thing I've ever watched. And I kind of agree with that in a sense, you know, that actually it is pretty terrifying thinking about these people who who they, they think they have our best interests at heart, um, but really, they are trying to play God. And it's I think it is terrifying. Um, so do have a look at that. I mean, this is just the mindset of these people. And it made me think, now, this is what we are facing at the moment in our society, which is you know, you, we are facing, I think, an all-out battle for the, for the soul of humanity, 
really. It's, it is, you know, there are people out there who think that they can control everything, who think that they can solve every problem, who think that they can do everything with governmental, with technological solutions. And it is terrifying to think that, you know, that, that we are seen as some kind of pawns in their, in their creating their perfect world. You think about what happened in the 20th century with communism in um, various different countries, you know, the death toll, the millions of people who died because some authoritarian leader thought that he had the solution. He wanted to create a utopia and millions died in the 20th century because of these regimes who were trying to create utopia. And yet here it's happening again. How many people are going to have to die because these these leaders they think that they are are creating utopia, whereas actually they are creating um, a nightmare. Um, and how many people are going to have to die before we wake up and realise that? And that's something that I just wanted to say. And I hope that this is both a challenge and an encouragement. And I've, I've just realised this this week that the culture wars are coming. They are coming for you. This this war, none of us really want it. None of us want to be caught up in it. But it's coming. You know, you, you, we can't escape it. We can't be like the proverbial ostrich and bury our head in the sand with this. I've had a few conversations recently with people who I like, people who I respect, who are, you know, very intelligent, who, you know, who are in many ways have, you know, are switched on and yet I think there is a kind of apathy about all of this stuff there is a kind of oh if we just carry on as normal it will um, it will roll on by and it will be fine you know it'll be like a storm in a teacup I don't think that's what's happening I think the ground is being prepared now for for a kind of all-out battle and that doesn't mean you know I think a, a violent revolution but I think we are going to have each one of us are going to have to act. You know, each one of us are going to have to look to what our values are, to what you know, to where we stand, and we are going to have to pick. You know, they're not saying pick a side. I don't think this is necessarily a question of sides, but it's a question of where we stand. You know, do we stand with freedom? Do we stand with free speech? And particularly, do we stand on Christian values, which we'll come on to later on uh, in the podcast? Is that where we stand? Or are we going to go with this kind of technocratic, um, you know, overbearing elites who, you know, just want to control us? Where are we going to be? And where are we going to, where are we going to pitch our, you know, our flag? I think we're all going to have to choose and we're going to have to act based on that choice sooner or later. You can't bury your head in the sand on this one. We are all going to have to choose and it's going to involve each one of us and for the sake of for the sake of our children for the sake of generations to come i truly and honestly hope that we pitch our flag with where the west was founded and where uh, which has brought us up to where we are now you know building on the the christian um, roots of our society building on those values building on that foundation as tom holland wrote about in his book dominion I think that's so important right now and I hope that we're able to to stand on that and that wherever we are you know we're able to say this is what I stand for and that's I will die on that hill 
hopefully it won't come to dying. <laughs> um, but that that is what we're going to need to say, I think. So with that said, let's move on now and let's think about reconfiguring politics. So reconfiguring politics, um, you know, a few weeks ago, um, back in January, I did a series called um, More Than Survival about what life should be like. And I think this might be the start of another short series thinking about what politics should be like and what government should be like. But let's just start thinking about that now. Uh, I call this reconfiguring politics. And it really came from thinking about the differences between the political parties um, and between what we call the left and the right. Um, is it now that the difference between the left and the right, that they're just meaningless distinctions now? now? Are there any meaningful distinctions between any of our main political parties, you know, between the Tories, between Labour, between the Lib Dems? Are they really any different from each other. I mean, I can think about some policy differences between them, but by and large, you know, they are carbon copies, aren't they? Pretty much. There's a distinction there without a difference. So to give you some examples in the lockdowns, then, you know, the, the Conservative Party, who you would have thought would be, you know, by their nature against the lockdowns, because, you know, that traditionally conservatives have been more about kind of personal freedom um, and so on uh, but actually you know the conservatives have been pro you know, introduced the lockdowns and and labor haven't opposed this in fact the only thing that labor have called for is more lockdowns you know that they um i think someone said on twitter made quite a funny remark how you know keir starmer the only thing that he said to boris johnson is you should have done it earlier and you should have done it harder when it comes to the lockdowns and that's the only thing pretty much that Labour have said. There have been very few across any of the political parties who have really stood up against the lockdowns. Um, but it's not just that. Obviously, we've been thinking a lot about lockdowns on the podcast, but also you can think of um, progressive moral views, um, such as um, same-sex marriage. It's, it's difficult to find anyone now who actually stands uh, against that. And there was, I read um, somewhere this week, one uh, MP who said she regretted voting against it because it was the wrong thing to, to do, um, in her view. So it's this, this sort of, you know, all-encompassing, um, you know, it, it's destroying everything in its path, you know, that, that that has triumphed. And similarly, think about transgender, although there's a little bit more debate about that in Parliament, that... Uh, by and large, people are on board with the transgender um, agenda as well. Identity politics. Now, again, you know, Labour have gone more down this road than the Conservative Party. There have been some encouraging kind of pushback against it in the Tories. But nonetheless, I think identity politics has kind of just become the default uh, position. And, you know, the, the Tories have done slightly better at it than Labour but at the same time that's kind of like saying that you know to use an analogy it's like patients um, in you know the ICU arguing about who's the most ill you know that, that you're both ill with it it's just one person doing slightly better than another and it's the same with identity politics I think it has just infested everything when it comes and every political party 
And every party now seems to have this kind of tendency towards state solutions. Now, even the Tories, who you would think would be more small government and wanting to reduce the size of the state and the state's control, they've imposed the most draconian measures in peacetime that have ever been imposed when it comes to the lockdowns following the Chinese Communist Party. And that's been utterly stunning to to many of us watching that happen. It's like the Tories have just been completely undermining their historical values. Um, so that's where we are, that virtually every you know mainstream political party has the same kind of set of values and there's really a just a hair's breadth of difference between them they have differences in some of their policies um, but by and large um, they've you know they are the same they come from the same stock So how did we get here? How did we get to the point where, you know, these parties have kind of abandoned their their roots and and actually, um, you know, be, just become the same? One of the things I find really striking as I look at look around at you know at political um, folks is I, I find I have more in common with someone like Paul Embury, who is tradi- you know, sort of from the traditional left, from the traditional Labour movement, than I do with a lot of modern conservatives. Why is that? Well, um, I think part of it comes from, um, as David, Goodwa- uh, David Goodhart kind of analyses in his book The Road to Somewhere, about the way that the elites have kind of taken their own path when compared with the rest of the country. Um, And he particularly identifies when 50% of young people are going to university, those who go to university are kind of inculcated into this, um, the, the new ideas and the new kind of values in our society and shaped and formed in that way you know they're taken away from their friends and family from their homes they're put in a new place where they often stay and you know kind of mobility that they they um and and so you know that that separates their ties and that brings them into this new group of graduates and you know that that you want to be as part of that group of graduates and so you have the same ideas you have the same kind of opinions and I think he's really onto something there. You know, that it's through education and I, I think especially universities that what's happening is that people are being formed with a particular set of ideas. Uh, do you remember a few weeks ago on the podcast I mentioned an article by Emily Schroeder on in the Critic magazine called Why I Quit Teacher Training? Uh, the article was from the 8th of February. And let me just read the last paragraph of that, because I think this is worth repeating. Sometimes I wonder how many children I would have traumatised had I not quit my PGCE. I think of one assignment in particular, which marked the trainee teacher on how well he, she, they champion transgenderism in his, her, their classrooms. We cannot change the laws, the lecturer told his disciples, but we can control what happens in our classrooms. That's what is happening. That through the education system, 
the people in positions of influence, in this case school teachers, but there are also others, people who go on to have jobs in the BBC, in the media, in Parliament, have this set of opinions. And it's this kind of set of opinions which is thus creating the culture, the the government, you know, the way that the country is. And this is Um, as I I put it, the triumph of cultural Marxism. Another book I read uh, recently, and I mentioned this um, a few weeks ago as well, um, is called That Hideous Strength, A Deeper Look at How the West Was Lost by Melvin Tinker. And this book, I think, was really helpful in kind of opening my eyes to how deep this goes. So cultural Marxism is what as what has been happening. Let me just read you a short paragraph from uh, Melvin Tinker's book about what's what's been going on. Um, So he's talking here about cultural Marxism and what it means. Change occurs not primarily through a violent overthrow of the ruling elite, but by capturing it at its most culture-shaping points, by infiltrating it, and so overtaking the key culture-making institutions, churches, schools, the media and civil institutions, the police, law courts, civil service, etc. This process was described by Gramsci as becoming state. The strategy, in short, involves subverting society by changing its culture, which is brought about by infiltrating its institutions. Hence the suitability of describing this brand of Marxism, cultural Marxism. That's quoting from that hideous strength by uh, Melvin Tinker. So, what they're trying to do is, is coming from the early 20th century, the schools of, of Marxism, the Frankfurt School, is this idea that we need to change the world to be how we want the world to be through infiltrating the institutions. And I think you particularly see this with universities. Now, that's what's happened, that, you know, as these ideas have taken hold in academia and through the latter part of the 20th century that was happening, then the people who trained in those institutions are then, you know, indoctrinated, if you like, into these ideas. And these ideas then, because the people who go to university tend to be the culture-shaping people, you know, through the um, the media, through politics, um, you know, who tend to be the people in positions of power, they are then shaping the world and this is intentional this is what people like uh, Gramsci and and others uh, intended to happen if you'd like an interesting article by the way about um, cultural Marxism then there was one on the conservative home website by Dr Simon Newman back in 2016 called aren't we all cultural Marxists now and uh, I'll put the link to that as well down below if you if you're interested in reading it he talks about what cultural marxism is the markers um, of it and you might find that an interesting read so that's what's happening that our institutions have slowly but surely over the last you know half of the 20th century into the 21st have just been captured by this kind of view and as someone pointed out we're all liberal progressives now I wish I could. Um, there was a um, an article I read a few um, a few months ago, a few years ago, I think, talking about this, about how everyone was liberal, progressive in in politics and so on, 
and um, I can't remember who wrote the article, I'm afraid. I think it might have been in First Things or um, something like that. But um, anyway, the point is that progressive values, as we've seen, it, it's just now what people see as what it means to be a good person. These progressive values are just, for a lot of you know younger graduates, they're just what it means to be a good person person they don't see it as being an idea which is you know could be debated like any other idea but it's actually kind of a quasi-religious view that this is this is the truth this is morality and therefore people who question it are questioning like like heretics so this kind of quasi-religious view you might think of things like um lockdown you know, the lot. I think the lockdown has ended up being included in this kind of religious um, view, um, but also things like transgender, pride, and supporting pride. Um, if you're on YouTube, I've got a picture up there of the police um, waving rainbow flags, and you know the the police have been disgustingly partisan over the past few years, increasingly so. Um, think about Black Lives Matter, the way that they policed Black Lives Matter against the way that they police other things like lockdown protests you know it's it's they've been so partisan because the police have been captured um things like climate change as well you know comes under that think about how people who question are called climate change deniers um and um, things like immigration things like islam again anyone who questions anyone who just wants to to point out and say hold on a second you know why are we treating uh, islamic violence and terrorism in a different way to how we treat other kinds of, of terrorism and violence and so on um and oh, legitimate questions about immigration as well you know it's often shut down as oh no that's racism and of course racism is you know the new original sin in fact when it comes to this new sort of progressive quasi-religious view so any dissent to these views is seen as heresy and it's illegitimate and that's why that people who question are called deniers, are, are vilified, they are ostracised, all of that kind of thing. It's because when you are questioning this new religious orthodoxy, this new kind of liberal progressive religion, then you are seen as a heretic. You're like an atheist. You're a non-believer. You know, we've got to cast you out. As Douglas Murray pointed out in um, The Madness of Crowds, that this, this new progressive religion is far more terrible than you know any of you know the old kind of christianity um that we had because there at least there was forgiveness and kind of an openness and tolerance but now it's a complete intolerance of anyone who does not subscribe to this this new religion i know we've looked at this a lot of uh, on the podcast over the past few um over the past few few months but i really think this is what's happening you know that the old values are being replaced by this new kind of liberal progressive values So the question then that we need to think about is what should government be about? And that's what I wanted to focus on for the rest of this 
this section and I think we'll come back to this next week. Um, what should government be about? Well, the Bible really talks about uh, two things about the purpose of governments. I think there are two purposes that the Bible kind of really um, hits on when it comes to, to governments, two major things. Number one is the maintenance of true religion and morality. So let me read you, this is um, a couple of verses here from 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall become their ruler. Shepherd. Now that's an interesting word and, and phrase there. Because we know that who else is described as a shepherd Jesus says I'm the good shepherd and you think of Psalm 23 David said the Lord is my shepherd so the rulers there are to, to, to lead the people in the right ways and they are to, to guide them I mean you know it does involve defending people protecting them doing what's right and best um, but particularly goes about maintaining that true religion aspect keeping them on the straight and narrow guiding them in the right ways that's all part of it so that's something which um, our government should be doing. And as we saw uh, last week, I think this was last week, that you know governments are a delegated authority. They're not autonomous, but governments have a responsibility under God to act in, in the right ways. So you know we as human beings have a responsibility to God. So also governments have a responsibility to God. He puts them there. And they should act in the right way. So this is this is how they should be acting. Uh, the second thing that they should be doing is keeping order and justice. Um, and this is uh, a verse, Romans chapter 13, verse 4. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So governments should be keeping order. Now, in both of these things, what do you need in order to, to accomplish that? Well, firstly, you need an idea of what true religion actually is. And it's not a, I think it's, you know, not a, um, a coincidence that over the last you know, a few years, a lot of people have noticed that for a society to have kind of cohesion, it needs to have a religious character. That's what brings people together. It's where you get your values from. It's where you get your, you know, commonality from. You can come together. That a society to be cohesive needs that sort of religious um, glue to bring it together, to give social cohesion. Um, and um, and so governments have that responsibility to you know to, to create it. So so we need a sense of kind of true religion. Also, we need a sense of the the values that go with it. You know, because every religion has got its own sort of values. And um, again, if you want to keep order and justice, you have to know what's right and wrong. That's just goes. That's a prerequisite, isn't it? Knowing right from wrong is something that. Um, you have to do to keep justice. 
So um, this is something which traditionally in this country, in the UK, we have had a kind of Christian based uh, government and these things have kind of been true. You know, we've got um, we've had an established church. We've had a, a law laws which are kind of largely based on Christian laws um, that is being eroded. And I think through the 20th century and particularly recently, it has been massively eroded. So what would the marks of a Christian government be like? And this is something that we've we've touched on just now. Um, I've put down two things here because um, I think these are really important, um, but you could probably add other things too. And let me know if you, you know what you think here. Um, but I think the first thing is the priority of Christian teaching, um, and I put education in schools. And a lot of people have said to me how when they were at school they used to be taught, you know, the Bible. They used to have lessons about Christianity, and you know all that kind of thing. Um, that was the done thing, you know, in the, the early post-war kind of generation, for example. Um, all of that's gone. Now, by the time I was going through school, you know, Christianity was seen as an irrelevance um, at best, really. Um, and I've put an established church as well. And I think, you know, some people argue for um, this establishment of the Church of England. Um, and I think, well, that, that may well happen. And if that happens, I won't grieve it. But I think it does say something about where, you know, what we want our country to be, who we want our country to worship, what what religion, you know, that we want to be. Having an established church kind of gives you that ability to say, well, this, you know, we are a Christian country. We are based on Christianity. We teach Christianity. We allow freedom to believe. But particularly, you know, in our schools, we want children to be taught Christian values. We want them to be taught the Christian faith and so on. So I think, you know, prioritising what it means to be Christian, that kind of Christian teaching. I think that is the um, one important mark of a Christian government. The second thing is to be based on Christian values so you know the, the values which spring from uh, Christianity and I know we've talked about some of these before for example freedom um, back um, we talked about this in the podcast um, episodes 21 and 23 um, a couple of weeks ago um, we looked at freedom and free speech and that's those come from that kind of Christian tradition also things like accountability and democracy that is something which um, comes again from a Christian idea that, you know, we as human beings are sinful and flawed and we need to, you know, um, we, like absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know, it's that that's the idea behind it. I think I'm going to look at uh, democracy next week, actually, on the podcast. So hold on for that, because that, that's such an important thing and it's really under attack at the moment. Um, and the final thing that I put here is that a Christian government needs to act for the benefit of its citizens, not for the benefit of a small group of elites, but for everyone, you know, because everyone is equally, um, you know, in the image of God. And, you know, we need to care for people, whether they be working class, whether they be middle class, whatever. You know, we need to give people freedom and opportunity and and so on and, and treat people well, 
wherever they come from and, and seek to, to be for the good of all. So that's what a mark of a Christian government, the marks of a Christian government would be. Uh, there may be others and let me know um, what you think. So let's finish this section then by looking at uh, Ezekiel 34. Um, I've recently been reading through Ezekiel and I think this is actually um, part of the Bible, this chapter, which is really a prophecy that applies so well to our times. If you're watching this on YouTube, I've got a picture there of the World Economic Forum and um, I hopefully that will become clear why I've chosen that image as I begin reading. So I'm just going to read, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, I'm just going to read um, the first the first couple of paragraphs. So this is, this is what it says. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed those who are ill, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and when they were scattered they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. So this is God saying to Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy against the shepherds, the people who are in charge of looking after the people. And that's because they have not looked after the people. You know, they've they fed themselves, they've made themselves rich, but they haven't um, taken care of the poor they haven't strengthened the weak healed those who are ill bound up the injured all of that kind of thing they've only really cared about themselves and you know their own kind and uh, just thinking about the world economic forum you know it just seemed to me like that's a bit like what's going on there that you know the it's the rich coming together to think how can we solve the problems of the world while not actually you know, really just benefiting themselves you think about, um, you know, the, the the super rich who, you know, have um, come on these. Um, oh, what was it? Um, is it Leo DiCaprio who was in that movie, the Netflix movie about climate change, who then was on his private yacht uh, the next week, you know, um, which uses more carbon than however many flights it is. It's just this kind of hypocrisy, and it's this self-serving nature of it all, you know, that they they claim to care. But they don't really care about what's happening. They care about issues. They don't care about people. They care about their own reputation. They don't care about doing what's right for actually the people who live there. And in so many things, you know, like net zero, for example, who is that going to impact? Well, it's going to impact the poor. It's going to impact people who have rising energy bills, rising food bills, you know, all of that inflation. It's going to hit the poor the hardest. And do our politicians care more about climate change a kind of abstract idea of saving the planet with some science which really isn't settled to actually caring about whether people can feed themselves warm themselves in the winter and so on 
you know, I think it's this really applies. But there is good news. Let me just read you the next part. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. God himself says, because you have not done what you should do, I will step in. It's like, you know, the, the boss is coming to visit and he is saying, I'm going to take you away now. You're incompetent. You have not done what I put you there to do. Therefore, I am going to, to come in and be the shepherd, be the one who um, who you should have been. You remember Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And I think about that, that God himself has a shepherd. God himself is not silent in this. And I think we need to be looking to him and remembering that he is going to come and going to to put his own shepherd in place. And, um, you know, that those who stand for themselves and for their own benefit, rather than for the benefit of the sheep, for the flock, if you like, for the people, uh, will be taken away. And that's what God promises to do. Well, let's move on just to think about one final thing, a little reflection from the Bible before we finish. So to finish with, I just a short reflection on uh, on Psalm 2. I think I may have done um, a video about this before or something about this before, but it just struck me, especially what we were thinking about with um, at the end of that, that section with Ezekiel 34. Let me read it out. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
I think this is a psalm for our times, isn't it? And it's a psalm for every time, really. Um, but thinking about why the nations conspire, the people's plot in vain. And that's just what happens through the world, isn't it? And you saw this actually in the Revelation series. If you um, go back, there's a playlist with all the videos on Revelation. And really, it's this, that the peoples of earth, the nations, do sort of gang up against God. That's what they try and do. They try and throw off his shackles. Think about the, that video that we had at the beginning from the World Economic Forum saying, you know, we are the gods. You know, it's not the god above the clouds. We are the gods and the cloud is the Microsoft and IBM cloud. That's what they're saying. They're trying to throw off the shackles of God. They're trying to say, you know, we can do a better job than God can. Um, but actually, um, and I, I love this, you know, does God laugh? This is one of the, I think, possibly the only time in the Bible where it, God is described as laughing. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He says, I have installed my king. So it's it's like, um, you know, as a, a parent, when you've got a young child, a little child, you know, if they have a tantrum, they don't want to do something. At the end of the day, you know, they're going to have to do what they have to do. Uh, you know, if they don't want to have a bath, <laughs> for example then they're just going to have to do it. And it's that kind of thing, you know, it's that laughing, it's saying, you know, actually, oh, isn't it cute? You know, they're having a bit of a tantrum. Um, actually, I, as a parent of a, you know, four-year-old um, <laughs> who who's quite awkward, it, it's not cute <laughs> um, when they... But, but that that's the thing, you know, that it's that, that level of, you know, um, almost like, oh, how funny... You know they're having a they're having a bit of a fit. They're trying to get out of they're trying to get out of you know God's God's control, but he's laughing at them because it's so absurdly ridiculous, and that is I think what's happening at the moment. You know that the nations yeah they're ganging up they're conspiring against God, but it's it's all going to backfire because, as he says, be warned. You rulers of the earth, they need to serve him, as we we saw last uh, last week. That you know the government is not uh, autonomous, but uh, governments, kings are warned to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus, and and celebrate his rule and do what he wants. And if they don't, then your way will lead to your destruction, as he says. That it will be it will be the end. It will be curtains for them. And we can be, we are blessed when we take refuge, not in governments, but in the Lord, because it's better to take refuge in him. And that's, I think, a great comfort to, to me and to many Christians um, throughout history, which is that, you know, it's always better to take refuge in the Lord than it is to take refuge in a government or in any authority you know, that we take refuge in him because when we're in him, then we are safe. No matter what happens to our bodies, that we are safe. And that gives us courage. That gives us strength for the fight and, you know, strength to stand firmly on the, on that, that firm foundation on the rock, um, knowing that, you know, whatever they do to us, we're actually blessed. We're actually taking refuge in him and, and they can really do nothing to us in the end. Um, so I think that's, yeah, Psalm 2 is a great psalm to meditate on and to have in our mind. Um, a good psalm to finish with. Now let's take a moment to pray as we close and ask God 
to help us um, with uh, with all of these things. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you do encourage us and we thank you that you have installed your king, that uh, you have set up uh, the Lord Jesus as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We thank you that we are blessed to take refuge in you. We pray that you would help us not to be worried about what's happening in the world, um, but to remember you. And we pray, Lord, that as we think about what the, the country should be like, what the government should be like, you would help us in our own in our own small spheres of influence, Lord, in our own small ways, to uh, know how you want us to be and how we can help to change that the little part of us around us just to be more the way that you want it to be. So we pray that you would help us to, uh, to trust in you, keep us safe, and uh, we look to you, Lord, um, this day and each day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks uh, so much, everyone, for joining me uh, today. Um, don't forget to do the liking, subscribing thing if you're on YouTube. If you're on the podcast, you might like to leave me a rating or even a review as that helps uh, other people to discover the podcast. It really does help. And uh, there's a buy me a coffee link as well if you'd like to help in a financial way. And I do appreciate that. So thank you so much, everyone, um, for joining me. And do let me know um, there's a... Uh, telegram if you want to, to join in discussion there's an email address which is sacredmusingspod at gmail.com uh, for any of your comments uh, otherwise i'll see you again next week uh, in the meantime god bless <laughs>